I'm Patrick Avalantelli. I played Noah Tannenbaum on The Sopranos, and you're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Potabing on Instagram. And as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Patrick Tully. Patrick played Noah Tannenbaum on the show. Patrick joined me in studio to talk about his experiences on the show, special memories from that time, his career as a musician, and much more, including several musical sidebars. I loved this conversation because while anchored around The Sopranos, we really jumped all over the place. Very grateful to Patrick for stopping by and excited to share it with you. So here it is, my conversation with Patrick Tully. Patrick, thank you for being here. My pleasure and honor. Thank you. So you live a musical life. Yes. Talk about that. Do you compose? Do you produce? Are you an artist? I do all those three things. Okay. Um, music is really what I've been doing since I was a very young child, and I knew immediately that that was going to be the path of my life. Um, I went to um, Interlochen Arts Academy, which is a boarding school for you know musicians and artists and um, visual artists, dancers, uh, actors. And after that, I went to music conservatory and. Um, I went for piano performance, which is a very, very lonely existence because you're spending a lot of time by yourself in in a practice room. And even when you perform on stage, you're there by yourself as opposed to being in a community. Um, my dad's an actor. And, I saw. Yeah, oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I re- so contrary to what most people think, I'm not, I don't wing these interviews. I, I thoroughly research everybody. But your dad is like a, was a pretty significant actor. He, he, he did well, yeah. you know, yeah. I, um, your mom too, right? She was. She was in Europe, yeah. And she was um, she was a actor and a model and stopped, when, you know, when I was born. Um, but my dad, of course, you know, continued. We, we lived here in Los Angeles for a period of time. and um, Just like Noah Tenenbaum. It's it's surprising, you know. There's a lot of similarities as yeah. far as I mean, except for the fact that you know my dad being an being an actor and having that life, which is very different to a very successful agent, entertainment attorney. Yes, <laughs> um, but um, we lived a very nomadic life in many ways. I mean, I had to move different countries like three times, and I mean, I had to learn a different language three times. What languages? Uh, German, English, and Spanish. Wow. Are you an only so, child? I am. Oh, me too. Kindred spirits. Yes. So how did you end up in, when did you end up in LA? Um, I, well, the first time I was very, very young with my dad. It was in, it was in the seventies. Yeah. And the second time was actually right after I did the Sopranos and, um, I came out and I felt like LA just really opened itself up to me. And a lot of, uh, I made a lot of great connections with people in the industry and I felt like this is where I should be now. And for many years I was bi-coastal. But L.A. is fully my home. And how would you define the genre of music that you make now? Well, it, it depends. I mean, there's a... If you were to look me up, it's all solo piano. Um, but I also love producing electronica, and I love working with other artists. Right now, I primarily am not 
the featured artist whenever I work with people. Okay. I'm always, I'm more, I Behind arrange the scenes. completely. And I, and I enjoy that. I yeah. mean, it was, um, I loved acting. And once you're an actor, you're always an actor. You right. know, I studied significantly in New York and in college. And when I got, the greatest thing for that acting did for me was actually gave me an ability to converse with people because I was extremely shy and extremely introverted. And even just the act of actively listening and being in touch with how you feel about what they're saying to you. are Those are life skills that you develop as an actor. Sure. And, um, and, it's, and it was just incredibly meaningful. And I, and I still, there'll be moments when, you know, I'll, I'll do a small film or I'll do a stage production. Not lately, my schedule is a little too busy. But I think once you're an actor, it never goes away. What were you doing immediately before The Sopranos? I was I was uh, an artist in residence at ART, um, which is the American Repertory Theater um, affiliated with Harvard, and I was doing a play with Anna Devere Smith um, called The Piano. Um, she wrote the role for me primarily uh, because of my training, my pianistic training, I think. And it was it was an incredible play. I mean, there are really wonderful people in there. I mean, Sara Ramirez was in there, who later on went and did Grey's Anatomy, and you know, Glenn Fleshler, who now you can see on Billions, and Charlie Lee, who later on went and did, you know, a, a role on Dexter. So it was really a tremendously talented group of people there, and we we were we were there for the summer, and so I got the call from my agent about The Sopranos while I was there, and I never thought I would get a chance to be on The Sopranos. I mean, that was, you know, New York in the 90s, the holy grail was to get a role in The Sopranos. Right. It was seen... Were you aware of the heft of the show? Like, when your agent called you, did you know about the show then? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, it was it was crazy because I, I mean, I've, I always loved the um, the gangster genre. Yeah. So, you Who know... Who does Yeah, and, and, and Sopranos was just, I mean, the acting, the writing, it was... It was just the best. And I, and I always figured, oh, you know, what an incredible show that I'll never be on. So you got the call. What's the backstory? Are you in New York when you get the call? From no, I, I, was in, I, was at, I was at ART. I was okay. at Cambridge. And I got the call, and they're like, well, you know, check out this role that they're, they're casting. You know, and I read the breakdown, and I, I said to myself, this is God telling me that I have a chance to be on The Sopranos because I could play this role. And that you get to say fuck you to Tony Soprano. <laughs> yeah. It was incredible. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. So I flew myself back for the first round of auditions, um, met uh, George Ann Walken, who was so helpful. And um, she was just very, very excited. I was very, very excited. And Were there other Noahs in the room? Like, were you competing against anybody? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I think at the, at the final audition... Well, not the final, final. The second audition, where it was at Silver Cup, I think they, uh, one of the other two people in the room was he had just he was Simba on Broadway because uh, you know the the Lion King was was playing that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so he was in the room, but I at that point I, it didn't matter who was in the room because I was so focused on just I'm not speaking to anybody. <laughs> I have to give my absolute best performance. I do not want to walk away from this feeling like I gave a subpar performance. Yeah. Um, I had to pull every single string that I could for Harvard to let me go and audition because they, the play was going to be, it was going to be opening soon and they didn't want any of their actors going anywhere. So even just to go to New York, I had to, 
you know, pull out all the stops and pull, ask a lot of favors to allow them to let me go. Did you burn any bridges? Um, I don't think so because, um, it's a a tough ask sometimes when you you are in a situation and then another situation comes, like it's a really interesting life kind of story because what do you do? It was a risk. Yeah. It was definitely a risk. I mean, I mean, Sara at that point was going constantly to LA. Yeah. For to be put on camera. So I thought, look, I mean, I know Sara has a bigger profile than I do right now, but um, you know, if, if they can let her go as often as they have, they can let me go this sure. one time. There you go. You know, for my dream role. So yeah. it ended up working out. But it was it was a tough ask. Yeah. So you get there and you audition. Who are you auditioning in front of? Do you remember? The first time, there were so many people. I mean, the faces that I recognize now, obviously, you know, were David Chase and uh, and um, he was Todd, in the room. He, yeah, he was in the room. Todd Kessler was in the room, and everybody else. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know who Todd was at the time. It was later that I, of course, met him. Of and um, at that at that point, too, there, there they were like all just people. people. They were, but they were all but, but they were all just people too. They were all just people. But I've, I'd never been in an audition where you had that many people. Why I, do you suppose that they had so many people? Is it just at the level of meticulousness? Is that part of it? I or? mean, it was it was coming off of all of the Emmys that they had won on this during the second season. You know, so I mean, at this point, it was a bona fide hit show, and it was like, okay, where are we going to go from here? And I think everybody, you know, was excited about it. People wanted to be a part of it. And I'm certain that everybody that, that was in the room was either there as a writer or an executive or a director. Yeah. But everybody wanted to be there. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. And it was a very, you know, it was a very intense audition. How many auditions total did you do? Three. And then when did you find out? Like, how, how soon? Your final audition happens? And then... Oh, my goodness. I, I flew back after my final audition. And I landed, I went to rehearsal, and as I was getting out of the car service, I got the call from my agent. And you turn around and go right back, or? Oh, no, I mean, they were actually, filming began after, after my show ended. Oh, so perfect. So it was perfect, yes. Yeah, yeah it, it, the universe was, the universe was uh, working in your favor. Yes, absolutely. Did you do any lines with Jamie at that early stage? I didn't, the- I didn't do any lines with anyone, except the last audition was just David and I. Wow. Yeah. He fed you lines. Yes. Interesting. Was he Tony? Was it the Was it the scene that it, were, were introduced? Yeah, it was, to the character? it was. It was. It was everything. It was all. It was, it was all three episodes. Yeah. Okay. How was that like? Um. I mean, at that. Uh, well, well, I guess I'm intimidated by him clearly, and right. a lot of, because because he is who he is now. You're right. He's, he's the shot caller. Right. But back then, you were you intimidated? Were oh, you completely. Kind of, I was very aware of of where I was yeah. and what was going on. Yeah. And I mean, I prepared for that audition like. I didn't prepare for anything else. I knew those lines backwards, forwards. I knew, I mean, I could not have been more prepared. I could not have given better auditions than I did. I walked out of there. I came out of there. I said, you know what? If I don't get this role, it's okay. Because I couldn't have done any better. That's all you can ask for, right? That's it. That's congratulations. Salute to you, man, because you got it. You know? (sighs) Um, What's your take on Noah? Who was he? What did his character accomplish in the context of the show? Noah was so Noah to me was a very interesting character because he, you, 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 as an actor, you can't judge who you're playing. You just have to simply know what, for me, know what my motivations are, know what is happening in the scene, and go from there. Noah, looking back, I mean, Noah was very selfish and very single-minded. I mean, in that sense, you know, I was a very ambitious kid too. Um, so you've had a little bit of that DNA in you in terms of like being able to get into that mode yeah. of like, 
I mean, with Noah, it, it really, my age was right. You know, I had, I had gone to that kind of a school. The said, level. That level, level. That academic level. And yeah. I said, you know what? If I can just read these lines and be believable, that's it. Yeah. Because I, it's not, as far as where we are and where we, where we came from, it's not a stretch. The choices, personally, would have been much different. But as far as being believable as that character... You said something interesting that David Chase sat down with you and read all the lines. So did you know it was a three-episode stint? I had no idea. Okay, you just knew that there were. this is all of the lines. You didn't know where they were going to be disseminated or dropped. I didn't, exactly. Okay. I, it, was, it was afterwards where I thought, oh, this was everything. Oh, you know? okay. You thought, yeah. you, as far as you were concerned at that point, it was like this might be one episode or two episodes or something. I had no idea. It's you true. No idea. Okay. Yeah, but there, I mean, there were a lot of lines. I mean, there was, particularly in... Um, you know, in university, that's that was a it was a tremendous amount of yeah yeah <laughs> dialogue. Of course, that's one of the most controversial and best episodes of the entire series because that's the episode where the the stripper Ariel Kylie, who's also been a guest on the podcast, she uh, gets killed by Ralphie, and there was a lot of backlash in society at that time. Uh, HBO lost a lot of subscribers because of that episode, so that episode is always kind of like a, a one of the pivot points of the of the arc of the show. You appeared in three episodes, like I just mentioned, all in season three. Looking back today, one of Tony's lines in a later season is, remember when is the lowest form of communication, but I ask everybody that comes in here to go down memory lane with me, so A, thank you, and B, I'm sorry to Tony. Um, looking back today, what moments, conversations, experiences come to the surface that you can share with listeners? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I remember, it seems as though, I mean, it was such a, it was such a heightened project to be a part of. Um, even, I, I constantly, you know, for me, I, I was always afraid that they were going to fire me. And I think that, you know, as an actor, you know, there's, it, you know, you really don't believe that you have the role until you see it, you know, on screen and the check is cleared. Otherwise, you can be replaced. And my ultimate fear was being replaced. So there was, that in itself had a tremendous amount of stress. I remember going into the first reading because I don't, uh, the, the second episode was actually shot first. Right, right. Yeah. And, Crochet Lavushka. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and so going into it, you, you know, you had every, I mean, I have never been at a reading where there were so many people in that soundstage. I mean, aside from all the cast and all the writers, it was just, it looked like a concert. And it was coming off of the second season, off of all the success of the second season. Everybody was walking in, you know, many of them seeing each other for the first time since they left. And the first thing... The first scene that was read was my scene with Tony. And, I mean, it was, I was so, so nervous. Even though you wouldn't have known it by looking at me, but I was holding the script with my right hand. And my right hand started to shake. And I was like, oh, God, why, why is my right hand? So I, so I took the script and held it with my left hand, which didn't shake. And I was able to do the rest of the scene, you know, with Tony there. Who were you sitting next to? Do you um, remember? I was sitting next to Jamie. Okay. Yeah. And um afterwards one of the one of the nicest memories that I have, you know, because that was a very intense scene, you know, between Tony and Noah. And um, you know, James just walks all the way over right after right after the entire reading is done, walks over to me, gives me this huge hug and says, You know I don't mean any of that, right? You know. And I'm like, Yeah, of course, you know, thank you. You know, he's I mean, but just such he was so generous. Whenever the energy on the set, everybody was so happy to be there. It it just hummed. There was this incredible feeling that we were all a part of something truly incredible. 
And there was that awareness. Any shareable memories, moments, or encounters with James Gandolfini? Oh, yeah, many, 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 many. I mean, for some reason, you know, when I would, you know, during that time, I, I kept on running into him in New York and also on set. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the funniest scenes is, um, you know, the craft services on set was actually pretty extravagant. I mean, it was gorgeous, like, you know, Italian deli meats. And it, I mean, it just looked like the fanciest Italian spread you can imagine. And um, I remember I was just standing there staring at it one time and James comes up to me and he goes, Ed, it looks like you're on an Italian show, right? You know, I mean, just small things like that that would just break the tension. He, he, was, he was something else. And he, even doing, I mean, being able to do, being able to just stand opposite him in a scene. I mean, there's, there's certain small things that he would do as an actor that, were, that would just, it was like gold to receive them. I mean, in the scene that I had with him, there was, there was this one spot where he just subtly, with his newspaper, you know, when he gives the line, he says, that's what I'm trying to avoid, you know, and he just gently, you know, taps me on the shoulder. But um, I don't know if people really realize how physically big James was. Um, he was able, he held his weight with, I mean, he really was able to embody that character because of who he was. And... You know, I just remember just feeling that ever so slow tap on the shoulder with the newspaper. But if you look at the scene, you see me like go back <laughs> from from the power of his momentum. He didn't do it hard, but he was just so he had he had such weight to him. I have a freeze frame of that image on the on the podcast's Instagram page, and uh, the caption is DOA, which means that like the, you know dead on arrival, like Noah's this relationship with Meadows over yeah. before you know it, and it was that it was that newspaper tap, yeah, you know, yeah. and yeah, it's it's so funny you mention it because I one of the things that we do to the chagrin of many people, but actually most people that like the regular listeners love it is we we evaluate that newspaper tap mm-hmm. it was intentional oh yeah it was in the script uh there's a scene where someone lights a cigar um and it says cut the cigar put it to your mouth twirl it around then light it then smoke it then dialogue and it was a little carmine line and little carmine the actor ray abruzzo asked like uh do you actually want me to do this do you want me to cut the taste like no cut the cigar twirl it around light it and then talk the whole point was to make Tony wait. And when you hear that, it's like, that's amazing. Oh, David Chase is a bona fide... I mean, you, we know this. Yeah, He's yeah, yeah. a genius. But yeah. everything, all the little nuances were completely intentional. If you... I mean, you couldn't, as an actor, if you said the same kind of line but inverted two words... Or intonated differently. Yeah, do it again. No, yeah. it's not. That's not what we want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Did that drive you crazy, or were you cool with that? I was cool with that. I mean, because I, I really, I mean, I knew my lines down. Yeah, you know. So I was luckily, I, I was. It was the right. <laughs> I'm sure that that was one of the important things that he was looking for. Are you a fan? Did you watch the show in its entirety? Oh my goodness! Okay. I, I mean, to to have been able to have been a part of one of my absolute favorite shows of all time is i i mean i still i still am in disbelief with it i still can't believe that i'm a part of it it's surreal and you're a part of it forever you know it's an amazing thing um have you rewatched it or was it did you put it to bed when you finished it you know it was when i i remember my last 
my last day when I was on set. And I was always, I would usually run to, you know, to my dressing room and just hide. You know, there were certain moments that I had where I just would remember standing on the corner at Silver Cup with little Stevie and Joe Pantoliano. And I'm just sitting here talking with these two these men. <laughs> you know, I mean, I grew up watching Little Stevie, I mean, as a, as a musician. Of course. And Joe Pantoliano, I mean, I'd seen in everything from the, you know, Matrix, Matrix to, and, yeah. yeah, you know, to, and um, so I, I just, I mean, all these moments of just like, I can't believe I'm here with this company. It's beyond, it's, you, you just can't, I couldn't believe it. Where did life take you immediately after the show? After the show, I mean, for me, Sopranos was a mixed blessing as far as my career because before that, I'd always done art. I mean, I was never fiscally minded, but you you also want to be able to feed yourself. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know? So there's this, you know, this 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 balance that has to be attained if you're going to have um, a career in this field. And before the Sopranos, it was always easy because I would have I would get t- you know being off, off, off Broadway theater. I mean, everything from, you know, ensemble studio theater to La Mama to the performing garage. I mean, all over New York doing this, you know, the more experimental theater. Um, The, you know, working with Anna Devere Smith at ART was much more, I I mean, it's certainly, I wouldn't call it conventional, but it was more mainstream and, and, and artistically incredibly fulfilling. So I went from all of this just constantly being fed with my art. And I, I, I never really made that much money ever. But I was always so satisfied artistically. And so Sopranos was one of these instances where artistically it was the most potent. It was so gratifying to do. And it was such a commercial success. So, you know, I came out to L.A. afterwards. You know, I had a great reception with agents and managers. And, you know, I got The Soprano bump. Oh, my bump. It was like, you know, being shot out of a cannon. And the thing is, I mean, I was, I was being given scripts to read. And I was so unimpressed with the level of material that I was being presented with that I think I just said no too many times where, you know, then just the, the fire kind of fizzles and yeah. you have to go off and do other things. Um, do you regret that? You know, I mean, I think that, I think I would have done things differently. I didn't really understand how... Hollywood worked because with those scripts and mind you I mean I was I was being offered more money than I'd ever had so you know how'd you say no I well I would I would sit there with my manager and say ah oh, this I just really don't think this is good you know and I just I mean I and I I did it several times that you know I could just if I think if I I, I wish that I would had a better relationship with my manager where my manager could have said look you got to do one of these. You got to take one. You got to take one for the <laughs> you team. You got to take one for the team. You got to just just do it, you know. And um, you have to. You can't constantly be expecting to be artistically fulfilled. If you're if you're going to get a role, you know, do the best that you can with what you're given. That's your job. That's why you're getting paid money. This goes back to your mixed blessing thing because The Sopranos was the was so good. It didn't get better. It didn't get better. You know, it was it was the best. And what do you do? Where do you go from there? Yeah, you know. <laughs> Kudos to you for sticking to your principles. That's so, that's so, that's amazing because like you said, like the temptation is there to take something, but I've asked a lot of people the same question. Like many of them, many actors have gone on and done a lot of good work, but it's realistically, it's not the same thing. Yeah. It's not the same level, but there's a point. 
And there is in this the way this town works. As little as I know about it, the 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 well dries up pretty quick. If it does, if it doesn't, you know, absolutely. If, if, if the powers that be don't get what they want, I guess. Oh yeah, and you have to you have to keep on going with momentum. Yeah, yeah. it's momentum. There you go. Um, are you classically trained on piano? I am. So like Chopin's waltzes? Absolutely. Uh, what's your favorite Chopin's waltz? Oh my gosh, probably C-sharp minor. Okay. <laughs> uh, I lived in a house in, I did summer school in uh, Cal, Berkeley. And I lived in a house in Albany with one of the housemates was a classical pianist, self-taught in Albany, uh, um, oh, California. California, adjacent, right, It's right, a right. town adjacent to Berkeley. To Berkeley, yes. And every morning I would wake up to him practicing Chopin's waltzes and Glenn Gould's uh, the, Goldberg variations. Sure, the Bach-Goldberg variations. The, the, but the Glenn Gould, it, the, it's, it's the Bach-Goldberg variations, but Glenn Gould's performance, performance of is Bach's, the iconic. Yes. Exactly, yes. He had it on video. He would watch it on sure. video. And then also I, I was introduced to Rachmaninoff back then. Yes. Can you play Rachmaninoff? <laughs> if, you, if you look on my Instagram, there's me playing Rachmaninoff on it. Oh, I'm going to check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Those are the three <laughs> composers that I know. So that's my... Those are my, those those are my are guys. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. Yeah. Chopin is... Uh, his waltzes are beautiful. Um, Arthur Rubinstein. Is that how you say his name? It's so funny. The, during the, when I was auditioning for conservatory, one of the questions that the faculty asked me is who... Um, who's your favorite pianist? Which is an impossible question because you can like one pianist for one composer and a different pianist for another composer. But I said, but my answer for my all-around favorite, if I had to give one in this moment, was Arthur Rubinstein. Wow. So Arthur Rubinstein. Okay. (laughs) And Vladimir Horowitz also? He's He too. Absolutely. Technically, like finger technically proficient. Otherworldly. Otherworldly. Yeah. Um, Favorite composer? Favorite composer... um, it, it, it again, it depends. If I had to choose one for piano, Chopin. Okay, but it's very close with Rachmaninoff. You know, Chopin and Rachmaninoff. You know, I Which li- one of them is more like Chase, in your opinion? If you had to analogize, who's the Chase of piano? Chopin, because okay. he's very precise. Not that Rachmaninoff is not precise, but uh, well, at the same time, I mean, you know, Chase could really um, Chopin can be enormous. I mean, Rachmaninoff can be more earthy, and you know have this really like guttural like deep quality Chopin is extremely refined and almost magical but precise so as far as Chase's precision I would say Chopin but as but as far as like being able to really just knock you out of your seat Rachmaninoff if Tony Soprano were a piano player who would he be I think that he would be Schiattoslav Richter who would probably be my favorite pianist if you asked me now. <laughs> what, are the, what are the elements that made you come up with that answer? Um, Richter, if you listen to Richter's recording of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, he makes it his own. He does it in a way that nobody... His interpretation, I mean, you can almost hear those Russian church bells in the beginning of the first movement. And I feel like what James Gandolfini did with Tony Soprano is he embodied that character to such a degree that it gave him otherworldly expressive power, truly. I mean, he was able, I mean, just just with a look, just with a tap. I mean, I've never met an actor that was more completely integrated, even though he was absolutely nothing like Tony Soprano. Right, right. And like, not at of all. Course, of course. <laughs> Which is hysterical, you yeah. know. Can you send me that performance, the one you're talking about? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, a link to it or Absolutely. if it's on YouTube, I would love to Absolutely. hear it. Absolutely, yeah. It's Deutsche, Deutsche Grammophon. Yeah, yeah, Deutsche Grammophon is the uh, record label. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll find it and send it I'd to you. I'd love to hear it. What are you doing today? What's uh, what's on your plate? Um, Projects-wise, uh, music-wise, talk about your career in the present. 
Um, I'm doing, it's all music at the present. Um, I do write my own music and I release it. I have a record label that I release um, various artists on. And I'm fortunate in having amazing clients that are doing extremely well in their careers who I'm able to help and arrange for and to coach and to go in there and have a um, somewhat of a, you know, being a guide, being a teacher. Yeah. Is L.A. home for you? L.A. is home. Mm-hmm. Have you read anything good lately? No, I haven't. Do you have a favorite bookstore in town? We, had, we do a bookstore podcast. I always ask everybody that, like wh- what they've read and where they go for books. There was a bookstore that was right down the street. I think, was it Book called? Soup? Book Soup. Yeah. You know, and I think that would, that would now would be my favorite. I mean, I used to love to go to the Bodhi Tree, which is non-existent anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love a lot of that, um, you know, Eastern thought and Eastern mysticism. So does David Chase. Yes. Big part of the DNA of that show. Yes. I had Michael Imperioli sitting where you're sitting, and half of our conversation was about Eastern mysticism. Mm. So, again, there's so many layers to the show. I have, I have a memory if you want to hear sure, it. Sure, I would Because love it. I remember one time when I was outside of uh, Silver Cup, and there it was, it, was, it was the evening, and I was there speaking with a few people, and I could see off about half a block down was a streetlight. And under that streetlight, David Chase was sitting on the ground and on yeah, on the ground on the street. And he was, and I looked and I'm like, I think he's sitting in Padmasana. I think he's, I think he's sitting in Lotus position, which is not, I mean, you, you either have the hips that are open enough to do that, or you just plain old can't do it. Usually it's reserved for, you know, high level yogis. But I, I remembered seeing that and thinking to myself, incredible, incredible. Because I, I mean, I have a belief that how open your body is, is how open your mind is. If you have a very rigid tense body your mind can't be too far away and if you have if you're able to sit in padmasana it shows a level of flexibility that is incredible and i believe that that flexibility also you you know your body and your mind are really one thing so if you want to look at i've always believed that if you want to really be able to read somebody look at their body that'll show you what's going on in their mind love it it's amazing and we, this was in the city he was sitting and like oh. yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean I mean it was Silver Cup so oh, you know Silver Cup it. Studios it's it. not you got know it. yeah we it wasn't on the corner of like twenty second and third yeah exactly <laughs> okay okay which would have been another story unto itself um, what music is on heavy rotation for you right now um, that's a that's a great question um, a lot of the music that I listen to does have to do with the uh, artists that I'm working with um, I work with a lot of artists in the um, EDM world and uh, the electronic music world. But for me, I mean... Are you familiar with this uh, DJ? Does he look familiar to you? No, who is that? Derek Carter. He's a Chicago house DJ. Oh, cool. And a friend of mine is a DJ in San Francisco, and he sent me this pin. Okay. And he said, I want you to wear this pin for a week, and I want you to tell me how many people ask you who is that. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, you, you said EDM. I thought about a house DJ, so I didn't Excellent. mean to cut you off. No, no. Um, the music that I listen to, I mean, I, I still listen to the music that I've that I've always loved. I mean, for me... Tom York, some of his solo stuff, and he's actually there's there's a song that he wrote for a film. I think it's a uh, Suspirium. I think that's Suspiria. A, Suspiria. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's on there. Um, um, what else? Actually, I could I could just sure. I have yeah. I have it right here. What I, I just to. love musical people, and I want to know what you're, like what you're listening to. And by the way, Savannah, um, who's out there, who you met, she is a Tom York 
ethnomusicologist. <laughs> Brilliant. We have, a, we have a Radiohead podcast that just launched today, actually. Fantastic. Yeah, like a documentary. Every episode is a mini documentary on a particular song. Great. Yeah. Oh, I'll be listening to that. Here, let's see. What am I listening to? Uh, inspiration. Yep, Suspirium, Tom York. It could be Sweet, Portishead. Thank you, Roiksop, Black Swan, Tom York. Let's see. Stronger Than, Lanx. Um... Of Wonder, here's someone that people don't know, Para Forkuva of Wonder. It's a wonderful electronic artist. Um, Enough to Believe, Bob Moses. Bob Moses is great. Yeah. Yeah. So, Patrick, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you for having me in.